Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, you're back with Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. Uh, In this uh, first section of the uh, program, uh, first of all, I hope that everybody had a happy Purim and that you're now in the process of getting ready for Pesach, for Passover, which means, as somebody once said to me, Passover is the time when God took the Jews out of Egypt and gave them freedom, and he put the Jewish mothers to work cleaning houses for the next several thousand years. And at any rate, there are several items that I want to discuss on this segment of the program. Several weeks ago, the Conference of Presidents of American Organizations came to Israel and spent, I think it was like about a week or maybe a week and a half, meeting with all kinds of leaders here in Israel. The mission's sole purpose was supposed to be to learn directly from Israel's key elected leaders about vital and serious issues that confront Israel in order that American Jewish leaders can be better informed when they address their own communities in the United States, when they address the media, and also when they address members of Congress. That's the purpose of their visit here. The directors, apparently, according to reports, violated the leadership mission's purpose because they refused to give podiums to the major elected ministers and Israeli leaders who are in the forefront of promoting Israel's judicial, anti-terrorist, and other reforms. By this I mean Israel's uh, finance minister, Betzalel uh, Smotrich, National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir, and member of Knesset Simcha Rotman, who is chair of the Knesset Constitution, Law and Justice Committee. The American leaders did not meet with them. In a sense, in a sense what they did, they violated their policy of supporting the democratically elected government of Israel. Now, it's interesting. In the past, these American leaders had supported the Oslo Accords. They supported the withdrawal from Gaza. Despite the controversy of these policies, because their policy is to support the government of Israel. Now, the, 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 the refusal to have a session with these important current leaders or, uh, on such critical issues is, uh, and they missed an enormous opportunity to learn from them, ask challenging questions, 
and exchange views with the judicial and anti-terrorist reforms originators. Americans are being inundated with misinformed, bold claims that the reforms are undemocratic. Shouldn't American leaders have the opportunity to hear from the Israeli leaders themselves and the originators of these things who are in the best position to explain why the reforms would, would, would according to them, in fact, make Israel safer, more democratic, and more like American democracy. In addition, the conference leadership mission had no elected officials or spokespeople from Judea and Samaria. They were not invited to speak, even though issues concerning these Jewish communities are constantly being debated. The conference essentially, they, they sort of made a, a form of cancer culture. They refused to speak to these people, and what they did was denied American Jewish leaders the opportunity to learn and ask questions about things like the situation on the ground in the Jewish parts of Judea and Samaria, increased Arab terrorism, how Jews living in and building homes there are being falsely maligned, the Biden administration's pressures and the Biden administration's interference, and the dangers of the enormous amount of European Union-funded illegal Arab building in so-called Area C. Now, the conference failure to hold these meetings contradicted the conference's own statement last week that the leadership mission was a forum for top American Jewish leaders to as they said, engage in an annual week-long conversation with top Israeli leaders, including sessions with the top echelons of the Israeli political landscape about the key issues, including differences between American liberals and, and what they called a staunchly conservative Israeli coalition that is advancing policies most Israeli leaders support Israeli voters support, but many American Jewish leaders consider controversial. Someone has studied, and a lot of people have spoken about and written in favor of the judicial reform, so they should have been invited, these key proponents of the reform should have been invited to speak before these American leaders. The, uh, some of the people in the, uh, the leadership group urged the conference to have a session with the Israeli leaders who were fighting for these reforms. As a matter of fact, three past chairpersons of the conference, even those who opposed reforms, strongly supported meeting directly with these Israeli ministers. But the conference refused to hold a session with Smutrich and Ben-Gvir and Rothman. 
They they all kind of excuses for not doing so, but their excuses, frankly, made no sense. In a published interview, the CEO of Jewish News Syndicate asked a uh, William Daroff, the CEO of the conference, why he refused to provide access to Smutrish, Ben Greer, and Rothman, even though they are directly relevant to the issues that the conference is sure to address. Now, Daroff, who was the uh, uh, head of the conference, uh, he uh, gave it a sort of an irrelevant response that the conference mission did not meet with other party leaders, uh, even Benny Gantz or, or Mira Micheli, the people in the opposition. But none of those other party leaders is leading reform efforts. None of them is in the present coalition government that overwhelmingly supports the reforms. The uh, it's interesting that the the head of the conference said that the the uh, views of Smutrich and Ben Greer would be well represented by others. It's interesting that the conference leadership uh, mission included a panel with an American law professor who favors the reform and a reform opposition from a think tank. There is nothing like hearing from the sources themselves. These people were here to meet and to hear with the key elected Israeli leaders who are working on a daily basis with these issues. It's interesting that although the Prime Minister Netanyahu supports these reforms, he could not address the conference because he was under a gag order forbidding him from speaking about the reforms. Since none of the uh, reasons for failing to meet these people, what could have been at play here? What really was going on? Did prominent left-wing members of the conference who had already publicly demanded that no one should host these officials pressure the conference directors to refuse to hold these meetings with these people? and to adopt what you can call cancel culture, even though, when you really think about it, this betrayed the purpose of the conference leadership mission. They are here to hear all the leaders in Israel on their positions, even on things that are controversial. The This cancel culture may also be harming the viability of the conference leadership mission itself. Fewer and fewer busy American Jewish leaders may bother showing up at missions when they cannot learn from and question key officials. And as a matter of fact, on the other side, Israeli officials may lose interest in speaking at missions with American leaders. So what the conference essentially did was adopt cancel culture, and the cancel culture failure to hold these meetings also insulted key Israeli leaders 
insulted hundreds of thousands of Israeli voters who elected them and, and essentially sent a dangerous delegitimization message to the world. During the, uh, the conference should at least schedule Zoom meetings with Israel's judicial and anti-terror reform leaders and leaders from Judea and Samaria as soon as possible. They should hear from all walks of life in Israel so that they can present, they can understand the positions here and can present them to those to whom they want to present it back in the United States. That's their goal of being here. And if they don't do that, they may as well stay at home. And on the same uh, issue, leading opponents of this judicial reforms have pretty much enlisted the media and they've cloaked themselves with the mantle of the protectors of democracy refuse to engage in any serious open-minded discussions. The two sides, the government, which is pushing for the reform, and the opposition, which is against it, they simply have not sat down to meet and discuss these things, even though the president of Israel, Herzog, is pushing for this kind of meeting. Rather, their actions and their rhetoric smack of a fair-weather view of democracy. They cherish, apparently, living in a democracy, but only when their side wins election, or if the system provides an insurance policy that allows them, even when their side loses, to direct the policies and agenda of the Knesset and the government in accordance with their own world view. Now, this, this is... All this was acquired back in 1995, and I've discussed this before, but it's worth repeating. Back then, Aharon Barak, the president of the Supreme Court, created a constitution out of a 1992 law called Human Dignity and Freedom. Interestingly enough, and I repeat this, it's important to know, that law passed with only 32 votes in a Knesset of 120 seats. The law provided there should be no violation of life, body, or dignity, except in a law befitting the values of the state of Israel, and so forth. Now, Barak persuaded a generation of Israelis that a law passed by just a quarter of the Knesset, 32 people, constituted the core of Israel's constitution, and the Supreme Court has the power to strike down Knesset legislation and all facets of life, if in the court's view it clashed with the human dignity and freedom law. So, the uh, the adoption and ratification of a national constitution is lengthy, and it's a much debated process involving the active participation of the country's citizenry and legislature in arriving at a consensus, and once adopted. It will provide the legislature and the government with clear guidelines and standards. This is not the case in Israel. The, uh, the, what, what passes some laws that are extremely ambiguous and subject to a very wide range of interpretation. 
the determination by the former Supreme Court Justice Barack that an amorphous law passed by a small minority in Knesset is the highest law of the land, and that the Supreme Court has the authority to set aside any government or Knesset action that it deems to be in a violation of their legislation, transformed the Supreme Court into a super-legislative and executive body. The power to legislate was effectively transferred from the elected representatives of the people to judges chosen by a small committee. And sitting on this committee are Supreme Court members who veto any new appointee, not to their liking. The power of the Supreme Court in Israel to mold legislation goes far beyond the authority to annul laws in the Knesset. Its influence starts as soon as the bill is first taken up by the government or the Knesset. The positions of the Attorney General to the government, legal advisors of Knesset, are the most part filled by lawyers who share a world view that aligns with the members of the Supreme Court. And it's an increasingly common occurrence here in Israel that laws proposed by the good-led governments are aborted at early stages because they call it, it as constitutional defects. The uh, it's inter- I'll give you an example. Early this month, 89 Knesset members voted in favor of a bill that would allow for the removal of citizenship or residency from a convicted terrorist who receives money from the Palestinian Authority. But the bill's passage was in jeopardy, is in jeopardy, because of objections from the Attorney General. So they have more power than the elected people. So this total disregard of legislative intent or of the process by which all all other countries adopt constitutions demonstrate the belief by the judges that checks and balances apply only to the executive and legislative branches of government, but not to the judicial branch. The judicial branch has become all-powerful. So the the people who oppose the judicial reform share this anti-democratic notion. So you have to ask yourself, was Israel not a thriving democracy and an, had an independent Supreme Court before 1995? Is there no shame in earnestly postulating Israel would cease to be a democratic nation? It will become a dictatorship, a one-man rule, if limits are placed on the power of the Supreme Court to annul Knesset legislation, the power never granted it by the Knesset in the first place. It's most ironic and it's overlooked that judicial reform legislation will actually, for the very first time, provide legislative imprimatur to the power of judicial review. So, a lot of people have expressed outrage at the core of the reform, and they have, they would, if you would compare with places like the United Kingdom, this reform is in line with many other countries. One would expect all these well-educated, illegal business political leaders who charge that Israel become a dictatorship and provides a limited form of judicial review 
They should challenge the democratic bona fides of Netherlands and England. Does any, uh, anyone, uh, anyone honestly believe that without the warnings from within Israel, investors outside the country will stop investing in Israel? This is a big crisis now. And even this week, people are going into the streets, mostly against the reform. I guess the, the people who are in favor of the reform pretty much figure that it's going to get pushed to an explicit by the votes so they don't go into the streets. This is a very difficult situation, one of the most critical since the state of Israel was founded. And I'll keep the... Uh, listeners uh, up to date on what's happening. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. How did a nice Jewish girl from Delaware end up living in Israel? Shalom! I'm Natalie Sapinski. Join me on my show, Returning Home. Meet different people who have moved to Israel. Hear their personal stories, their highs, their lows, and everything in between. Each week, we talk to experts on immigration and the process of moving to Israel. Listen to Returning Home. Every Sunday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say something uh, about how the uh, present struggle to reduce the uh, inordinate power that the uh, Supreme Court and the the justice system here in Israel has taken to to itself uh, over the last uh, 20 to 25 years it's a big struggle in Israel. The new government is trying to reduce the uh, amount of power that the courts have. And it's a very big issue. Thousands of people are going into the streets demonstrating over the last couple of months about the fact that the new government wants to reduce the what they consider to be the uh, amount of power that the court system has. There are basically two things. I've spoken about this before, but just to summarize, summarize it, there are people who feel, and I happen to be one of them, that not only has the court achieved an inordinate amount of power compared to the legislative branch, but one of the problems is that it essentially chooses its own The choice of new members of the court is made by a committee in which the uh, sitting members of the court essentially have an override. Out of nine people on the uh, committee that chooses new judges, three are sitting judges and two are members of the uh, law community and who depend on these judges in their private businesses. So essentially, the three judges plus the two people who depend on them represent a majority in the committee of nine that chooses new judges, so they pretty much choose people like themselves. And that's the main thing that the new government is trying to pass a law to cut down on. I don't want to go into the details because they're a little bit complicated, and I don't want to bore the listeners. But the basic problem is that the 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 uh, the courts have 
a lot, a lot of power, more than they have in other democratic countries, and the government is trying to reduce that power. That's the bottom line. We're not going into the details. Now, I want to say something, uh, which at first, when I start reading this editorial from the Jerusalem Post, it'll sound like it doesn't have to do with it, but there, the uh, I think that the editorial is of interest. I want the to read most of it or take most of what it says and for the reader, for the listeners, and then I'll explain where the uh, tie-in comes. The editorial in the Jerusalem Post last week discusses the fact that the new um, minister, there is a diaspora affairs ministry in the government. The head of it is named Amichai Chikli, and what's happened is he has succeeded in obtaining the largest budget in the ministry's history, 500 million Israeli shekels. Now, he was interviewed, and he said his staff is looking for solutions to the tuition crisis in American Jewish schools and the educational crisis of Jewish schools worldwide regarding Jewish education and Hebrew studies. By the way, 45 years ago when I was a... um, the Shliach, I represent the Jewish agency in the United States. I had long talks with uh, members of the Jewish community because at that time, the federations that raised money were not giving any money toward Jewish education. Today, the story is quite different because they realize if there's no Jewish education, there's not going to be a future for the for the federations themselves. If Jews are not educated to be Jewish, and I'm not talking about being religious, to, to know things, be part of the Jewish community, they're not going to donate to these organizations, these uh, confederations and federations that essentially uh, operate the Jewish communities. So the main effort in order to have strong Jewish communities is to empower education with success and educational initiatives. So the uh, what what the new uh, diaspora affairs minister said was, and I quote: "We're looking for the most relevant players, the most dynamic, energetic players on the ground, and we want to empower them. We cannot replace them. We don't know the challenges of the Jewish communities in the various countries, like uh, anywhere you take a country like Chile or any other country in South America. We can't know better than they know." themselves. They know better, and we don't know the challenges of the Jewish communities in in places all over. They know better than we do here in Israel, and afterwards, uh, in the final analysis, we have to relate with them, find out what we can do to help them. All that sounds very promising, very hopeful, and of course, we wish the best of success in implementing these plans. The readiness to listen to Jewish communities is important, but it cannot just be about their needs when it comes to education and Hebrew studies within their communities. The day after the new diaspora affairs minister spoke, 
the chairman of the Jewish agency, a man named Doran Almog, broke his long-standing policy of silence and said, and I quote, Reform and conservative Jews openly say they do not feel discrimination in the United States like they do here in Israel. The state of Israel is the national state of the entire Jewish people. This includes the ones who live in Zion, the ones who are in the diaspora, from all religious streams in Judaism. There are three million it's estimated there are three million Reform and conservative Jews in the United States. And the head of the Jewish agency said that he received many letters from Reform and conservative Jews with what he calls concerns and fears. They openly say that in the United States there may be anti-Semitism, but do not feel discrimination in the U.S. like they do here in Israel. The uh, the it's interesting. There is is a rift developing between Israel and the diaspora, and the uh, Jewish agency is supposed to represent all of them. The uh, Israelis may be hyper focused right now on the terrorism that's been plaguing our streets. As, the, as well as the ongoing parliamentary and public battles over the judicial reform. However, we cannot pretend that this will not impact on our relation to Jews in the diaspora, and apparently it already is. This is a very serious problem. By the way, I mentioned previously that the Conference of Presidents major Jewish organizations came to Israel and didn't speak to several of the ministers in the government because they don't like what they, the things they've said in the past. And it's interesting, I remember when the state of Israel came into being, Jews around the world, particularly in the United States, Jews of all stripes, conservative, reform, atheists, it didn't matter. They all supported the the state of Israel, even though Israel at that time was under a labor government. Uh, I don't have to go into the details. You can just read the history books. There was a time after the state of Israel came came into being where the labor, labor Party and its various branches controlled the government, and people who didn't belong to them didn't get jobs. But and that that's a that's a story unto itself. But Jews all around the world, whether you're a capitalist or communist, supported the state of Israel because they finally had a Jewish state after two thousand years. Now, seventy five years later, people outside the state are picking and choosing what they like about the Jewish state in order to decide whether they're going to support it. Times have really changed. The uh, so it's important that a decision has been made to allocate 500 million Israeli shekels to programming through the Diaspora Affairs Ministry, but who knows if that's enough. The connection is not just about Israel putting money into helping to fund informal education programs or tuition at Jewish day schools across the globe. These are very important.
Now, the problem is there are progressive Jews feel that they're discriminated against in Israel. The country is moving away from its democratic foundations. Something more needs to be done. So the the people in the government now are busy. I guess the best way to say it is a lot of people in the government now are shooting off their mouths without thinking, and they are uh, going to alienate people outside the country. A lot of people are uh, right-wingers, and they've been pretty radical in their history. But the moment you get the responsibility of being a minister in the government, you have to tone down, you have to think of the effect of everything that you're going to say. And if you're going to push for things that even though you think they're right, you have to know how to be, to handle these things and to be diplomatic. A lot of things you say during an election campaign, you'll never, or you you should never again say once you have a responsibility. That That's uh, one of the rules of politics. Once you get responsibility, you, uh, I think it was uh, Ariel Sharon who, who took certain positions, and after he was elected to office, he took uh, opposite positions, and his famous saying was, what you see from here, you didn't see from there. So it's quite important that people who are now in the government act responsibly. The last thing we want to do is alienate our co-religionists outside the country. I guess the bottom line is that people are now in a position of responsibility to arise to understanding what that responsibility means, and they should learn to speak in a way that does not alienate our brethren outside the country. Now, I want to go on to another subject. It has to do with defining the fight against anti-Semitism. America is often described as the greatest place to be Jewish in the world. With the Jewish diaspora now having existed for about uh, more than 2,000 years, the claim that the U.S. is the best place has ever been for Jews not only bears significant weight, but it also has some truth. The uh, the uh, the uh, America has been great to a Jewish community. It's afforded ample opportunity and civil liberties. However, However, and this is a big however, history has demonstrated that for Jews in the diaspora, the welcome wagon can be a very fleeting and temporary thing. Jewish communities once thrived, really thrived, in uh, Spain, in Poland, in Germany, and in Iraq, in Iraq for 2,000 years but they were extinguished almost overnight in those places. Now, there are some people now who fear that history will eventually repeat itself in America, where anti-Semitism has been rising for the last few years. Jews comprise 2.4% of the United States population, but 60% of all religiously motivated hate crimes are against Jews. Last month, several Jews were shot as they left the synagogue in Los Angeles. Um, 
A man reportedly fired blanks at a Jewish community in San Francisco, and neo-Nazis announced a nationwide day of hate, harassing Jews and asking that they should be put into ovens and telling them to return to Israel. Hostile flyers filled with age-old tropes are being distributed in cities across the U.S., US. We're seeing anti-Semitism reported by students at universities and high schools in the United States. That's a new phenomenon and an unpleasant one. There are those who say that despite such surging anti-Semitism, and it is surging, there's room for optimism. A growing movement of states in the U.S., are willing to fight anti-Semitism and alter the trajectory of Jewish history. For example, Arkansas uh, set an example and, and codified the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance working definition of anti-Semitism. And in the state of uh, Arkansas, they voted it into law <coughs> to ensure that government bodies can better identify and punish acts of unlawful anti-Semitism and educate staffs to do so. Now, it's it's known by its uh, initials. It's the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance Working Definition. That's the IHRA Working Definition. Now, in Arkansas, of all places, the unanimously passed Senate Bill 118, Arkansas became one of 10 states in the United States to either passed or incorporated the working definition of anti-Semitism into law. That includes Republican states like Iowa, <coughs> Democratic states like New Mexico, and purple states like Virginia. These IHRA bills are now pending in multiple states 22 states in the United States have an adopted definition by executive proclamation. So, and in support for this definition of anti-Semitism transcends party lines, and so must the fight against anti-Semitism. In order to fight anti-Semitism, you have to define it, especially when surveys indicate half of all Americans don't know what anti-Semitism actually means. Now, anti-Semitism has been around for millennia. It has evolved to incorporate different themes, making anti-Semitism difficult to address. The IHRA definition incorporates 11 examples that help identify both classic and contemporary iterations of the world's oldest hatred, anti-Semitism. 
This IHRA definition has become the consensus-driven definition of anti-Semitism for the Jewish community. It's been being adopted by over 90% of the major American Jewish organizations. It has been adopted or endorsed by 1,100 entities worldwide, including nearly 40 countries. And presidents from Democrat and Republican administration and various institutions and even Lufthansa Airlines has adopted this definition. Now, the uh, anti-Semitism now spread uh, information about efforts to define and combat anti-Semitism by keeping anti-Semitism undefined or underdefined anti-Semites can avoid accountability for their acts of bigotry. So, by the way, opponents of this IHRA definition falsely claim that legislation might infringe upon one right to free speech and ability to criticize Israel. This is a false claim. Anti-Semites can still espouse anti-Semitic and anti-Israel rhetoric, the IHRA definition even notes that criticism of Israel to that leveled against any other country cannot be regarded as anti-Semitic. So it's interesting that, uh, you know, you can criticize Israel, but you very have to be careful the wording of that criticism. The... Uh, so the uh, we have an, a definition of of anti-Semitism is being adopted by more and more in American states, and that's a good thing because now it'll be a law. Uh, I'll be back after the break. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Norris from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, you're back with Jay Shapiro. The last several weeks have made Israel appear increasing, increasingly chaotic. Massive protests against judicial reforms come amid comments by the government and opposition that show the country is deeply divided. The rhetoric is increasing on both sides, and there have been more shooting attacks in the West Bank and concerns about revenge attacks by settlers after the rampage in the 
Palestinian city of Hawara. This has also led to the U.S. State Department to slam comments by uh, one of our ministers, Bitsalel Smotrich. So the overall trend appears to be chaos. On the other hand, and this is quite interesting, in many parts of Israel, life continues as normal, or as normal as life can be in Israel. There was very hot weather at the beginning of the week. It brought massive numbers of Israelis to the beach, and winter appears to have transitioned to summer for a couple of days. There was no spring in between. Purim was this week. This means that some, some, while some people think Israel could face an intifada and civil conflict, the overall status quo continues normally in many sectors. However, there are looming clouds, and all of this occurs as Iran's regime pays close attention to Israel. In Iran, they think that the country here is deeply divided. So what's really going on? Prime Minister Netanyahu is not new to politics. He has seen the U.S. express concerns in the past about various extremists in Israeli politics and actions by Israelis. He has also seen conflicts with the Palestinians come and go. Considering the chaos that has erupted after he formed a new government late last year, is it plausible to conclude that all this is taking place by accident or could perhaps be spontaneously, or neither spontaneously or by accident, but planned? What do I mean? Is it possible that Israel's continued slip toward chaos is part of a wider doctrine. Netanyahu is reputed to be a student of history. History provides some insight into the method of governance in which chaos plays a role. Throughout history, various theories, such as Machiavelli, have proposed methods for governments. Uh, he wrote a book called This Prince, and he saw chaos everywhere around Italy, his home country. Now, in China, there were thinkers like Sun Tzu came up with influential works on military strategy. A quote attributed to Sun Tzu says that in the middle of chaos, there is also opportunity. A figure from the French Revolution, George Danton, is well known for his quote, which in English was, audacity, audacity, and more audacity. Throughout the last decade of Netanyahu's rule, only interrupted by a year in which the opposition came to power, in all those years, there's been a tendency toward both status quo and chaos. <coughs> What that means is that the overall status quo remains, 
There's a divided Palestinian polity, no grand schemes by the, schemes by the government, Israel's inaction in the Syrian civil war, and this confrontation with Iran. This has been going along. Now, around this status quo, there's always hovered various crises. There were wars in Gaza in 2012, 2014, 21, and there was a stabbing intifada, and there was a crisis over metal detectors on the Temple Mount, even the crisis over annexation. However, when one looks back, we have to ask ourselves, what really changes? We all recall annexation when Israel was supposedly going to annex parts of the West Bank during the Trump era. Then suddenly there was no annexation. It's almost as all of this is sort of a kind of circus act designed to get part of the public distracted about some kind of controversy and then quietly remove it. For example, now there is a Bedouin village on the road to the Dead Sea uh, east of Jerusalem called Khan Amar, and it's supposed to be removed, but over the years, yet court cases have been brought about it, but it still sits there. In fact, if you think about it, nothing really happens in Israel in the grand scheme of things. While Israel continues to build new highways, new rail lines, on the big questions, nothing really changes. The judicial reform being proposed looks like one of those red lines that some people will not stand for. So the question is whether the governance pattern of Netanyahu's governments is primarily underpinned by a doctrine of chaos. Is chaos the symptom or the goal? This is not only the government that appears to practice his doctrine, the Trump administration was also underpinned by seemingly endless chaos. In Turkey, the Erdogan regime's multi-decade rule has been essentially a regime of chaos in which it creates a crisis every few months to feed off and distract people just long enough to get to the next crisis, the next election, the next military operation or terrorist threat that it has to overcome. The, uh, it's interesting, back in 2008, before Netanyahu's return to office, Ynet ran an article about Netanyahu. The article noted the following story, and I quote, Hannibal was a military commander who lived more than 2,000 years ago and defeated the Romans in several battles. Um, the, uh, now, that's what the, the, it was written. And now, in uh, last week, in the Knesset cafeteria, Benjamin Netanyahu said, for hundreds of years, mothers in Rome would use him, Hannibal, to scare their children who wouldn't eat. They would tell them, if you don't eat, Hannibal will come back for you. So, and now he said Hannibal is back, 
I'm Hannibal, talking about himself. The point of the Hannibal story is that this was a period of chaos, not a period of peace. Netanyahu's power, time and power has been generally been one of economic prosperity and growth and relative peace in Israel. This is the irony of the chaos doctrine. If such a doctrine exists, that the chaos enables some kind of status quo that enables prosperity. For instance, on large trends, Israel is not a declining power. Israel does not have the demographic problems that currently face countries like China, South Korea, and Japan, where birth rates are falling to the point of where many families now have only one child. Israel has not faced the immigration crisis of rising crime rates of some countries. However, for those who are concerned that this country is slouching towards authoritarianism or, and is increasingly being exploited by or dominated by religious parties and religious fanatics, the chaos doctrine indeed ends with a country that is irreversibly changed from what it was two decades ago. This is the same state of affairs the opposition in Turkey finds itself on after decades of rule by one party. For Israel's key adversary today, Iran, the chaos inside Israel appears to embolden the regime. But to what end? That regime is enriching uranium, but the enrichment leads to an unclear future. And for the Palestinians, the chaos in Israel hasn't led them in any sort of success in Gaza or the West Bank. All the aging Palestinian leadership has seen its power eroding, and Hamas hasn't brought Gaza anything but isolation and failure. The Netanyahu doctrine, which I think is chaos and status quo, has ostensibly brought Israel better relations with much of the region. This, I think, is his vision of peace through strength. However, that document generally didn't bring Israel warm ties. It was under another government for a short period of time when Netanyahu was not in power that Israel had an unprecedented number of meetings with countries in the region, including developing concepts called the Negev Forum. So this mixed mixed record leaves judgment of the chaos doctrine up for the historians. Hannibal's long war against Rome failed. Israel's long chaos and status quo intermittently will lead to better results if it is to prosper. So we're in a period of chaos followed by non-chaos, chaos followed by stability. It's been going on for years, and I just wonder, maybe that's that's in future for us, no matter what happens. That That is, seems to be the, the way that Israel operates full-time, chaos followed by non-chaos, and then we continue and make progress and prosperity. So that must just be the Jewish way of running a state.
Interesting to note, I want to share some figures with the listeners. And in 2022, there were more than 5,000 Palestinian terror attacks against Israeli Jews, including car rammings, shootings, stabbings, and bombings of innocent men, women, and children. These attacks included more than 500 Molotov cocktail attacks, which essentially are firebombs, leading to the injury of more than 150 Israelis. There was a, a 210 rise in rock throwing incidents, rock throwing incidents in 2021 over 2020, and 150% rise in bomb throwing incidents. By the way, these are the official numbers. A lot of things go unreported. The comparative statistics for 2022, which not yet fully tabulated, appear to be even worse. Over the past month alone, Palestinian terrorists have slaughtered 15 Israelis. These murderous attacks constitute a continuing Palestinian mega program against Israel. Now, in, incidentally, uh, when the, after two Israelis were killed in a Palestinian cow, town called Hawara, a bunch of people took the law in their own hands. And they attacked the, the community there before the Israeli soldiers could stop them. And they burnt cars, they destroyed houses, and uh, bulldozed buildings uh, from which Israelis have been shot. There was a, essentially a pogrom by Jews against the Arabs. But, however, nobody in that town was raped, kidnapped, or murdered. The uh, So, the, the, it's hard to describe what's happening without meaning to diminish the ugliness of extremist attacks on Palestinians, 300 uh, or so attacks a year against Palestinian property, and 100 attacks against individuals, which are the UN figures, this pales in comparison to 5,000 Palestinian boulder bomb and shooting attacks a year aimed at killing Israelis. Certainly, events on the scale of what happened in the town of Hawara are almost known, uh, unknown. And 300 attacks on property and 100 attacks against individuals committed by a few extremists, extremists at the fringes of a half million person strong and peaceful community of Israel, Israelis who live over the green line in Judea and Samaria calculate to a level of violence that is lower than the level of violence of Israelis against Israelis that affects the greater Tel Aviv area. So, you know, things have to be put in, um, in perspective. In 95% of the rock and bomb throwing cases brought before Israeli civilian 
and military courts in two, between 2019 and 2020, the sentences handed down, handed down against perpetrators were far below the maximum sentences possible in Israeli law. Some sentences were minuscule, amounting to only several days of incarceration. The average prison term assessed for serious rock-throwing attacks was 8.3 months. The average prison term assessed for murderous bomb-throwing attacks was 13 months. And by the, the law allows, by the way, for 10 to 25 years in prison for these offenses. In 11% of the rock and bomb throwing cases, no penalties were imposed at all. So, in fact, not all Palestinian attackers were prosecuted. In 2020, only 21% of rock throwers in reported and documented incidents were indicted and prosecuted and prosecuted and only 33% of bomb throwers were indicted and prosecuted. So the um, these attacks, the lax Israeli operational and legal response to them and the world's equanimity in the face of such sapped the sense of personal security for Israeli civilians and reinforced the sense of jihad against Israel for Palestinian extremists. So th th this, these are the facts on the ground. And it should be noted that Palestinian terrorists are incentivized to commit acts of violence. First, by weak Israeli prosecution. Second, by the international stillness and nobody saying anything about it. And once again, worse, by the Palestinian Authority's terrorist reimbursement and reward program, which provides 600 million Israeli shekels a year in salaries for jailed terrorists and their families. This is the reality on the ground. These are things I want the listeners to know about. So uh, I don't think Israel is doing its job in, in prosecuting rioters. And I think that, uh, you know, Israel holds money that uh, belongs to the Palestinian Authority. And as long as the Palestinian is going to pay uh, terrorist families, Israel should stop giving them the money. It's a complicated situation, but I wanted the listeners to be aware of some of the numbers to see what we're facing on a, on a yearly and a monthly and on a daily basis. These are not easy times, and we hope the Lord will give us the strength to get through them properly and use our good sense to arrive at some kind of solution with the Palestinians. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together 
and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You've come to the best station for hot news and sizzling commentary. אתם מקשיבים ל-Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Uh, Israel is now going through one of the most difficult domestic crises since the founding of the state. There was a very big domestic crisis back in the very beginning of the founding of the state when there were people who were opposed to uh, getting uh, money from uh, Germany. Uh, because of what the Germans had done to the Jews during the war. There were riots in the streets, people were arrested, and a lot of protests. And that was probably the worst thing that happened during the first five years of the existence of the state. There have been all kinds of protests about all kinds of things since that time, because the Israeli society in general is a very active society, and they take an interest in what's happening to both domestically and foreign affairs. But right now, they're going through a crisis having to do with the attempt by the government, which just came into office several months ago, to pretty much curtail the wings of the Supreme Court. Uh, I've spoken about this before, but just in brief, what happened was over the past 25 years, particularly under the head of Supreme Court uh, Justice Barak, the court has taken upon itself more power than judicial uh, parts of a government have in other countries. Uh, they can uh, do all kinds of things. They can uh, circumvent laws. They can nullify laws, so forth. So what the new government is trying to do is pass a, um, a bill that would curtail the, uh, the power of the Supreme Court. The matter in which they're doing this is uh, a little bit complicated. I don't want to go into the details of border listeners, but essentially what they're saying is the Supreme Court has allocated to itself over the past 25 years more power than uh, it should have as a court, and therefore they want to reduce the power. They don't, they don't want to eliminate the power, but they want to reduce it. This has brought people into the streets and... It's uh, really become an issue that there are even serious veteran members of the Israeli army and senior officers who say that they're going to go on strike, they won't serve in all kind of, uh, all kind of conditions unless the, uh, the, this uh, attempt to change the rules uh, is uh, nullified. And essentially what this amounts to is insubordination. I want to say a few about a few words about this. Thirty-seven of the forty reservist fighter pilots from the Air Force Air Force's 69th Fighter Squadron announced on Sunday they would not attend training flights this week to protest the government's proposed judicial overhaul. Instead, they informed their squadron commanders in a letter that they planned to hold a dialogue regarding the issue outside the government offices in Jerusalem. In particular, they wrote, On Wednesday, March 8th, we will devote our time 
to discourse and thinking for the sake of democracy and the unity of the people, and therefore we will not report for reserve duty on this day with the exception of operational activity. That's what these reservists wrote. Now, let, you got to be clear about this. Refusal, refusal to serve in the army, the Israeli Defense Force, including the reserves, for political reasons, is simply not acceptable. It's not acceptable legally. It's not acceptable morally. The Israeli Armed Forces, which represents all Israelis, must be above politics, including this current political struggle over judicial overhaul. But while in principle, there should be no insubordination. The, the reservists are people who volunteer to protect this country and they have a right to stand up for their beliefs, but not to strike. In fact, it, it's pretty not acceptable for politi political parties that represent the ultra-Orthodox, such as the Shas Party, and United Torah Judaism, and others who evade military service altogether, it's, it's really not right of them to speak up on this issue, because they haven't earned that right. They do not serve. These people who serve may be, I think, wrong in saying that they won't show up for duty, but they've, they've earned the right to protest. Uh, the uh, the it, this is a very serious thing. Still, how should the state respond to this very serious threat by literally thousands of soldiers and reservists to refuse army service if this legislation passes? One letter from reservists who serve in an elite in an elite group called the. 8,200 unit, unit uh, had more than 600 signatures in this protest document. Uh, several of my grandchildren serve in the 8,200 unit, and it's very, uh, the truth of the matter is, I have no idea what they do, because be, um, they're considered the uh, really top-notch soldiers uh, in uh, information and uh, they're not necessarily fighters. They're people who are involved in all the intellectual activities of the Army. I have several grandchildren uh, serving in that unit. I have no idea what they do. They don't talk about it. So uh, more than 500 of them, I hope not my grandchildren, by the way, uh, have signed this document saying that they won't serve. Uh, the defense minister was right to, de to denounce insubordination, while at the same time, the defense minister's name is Joab Gallant, he called for his dialogue. The situation today requires dialogue and quickly. We face heavy and complex external challenges. We have enemies. Calls for insubordination hurt the Israeli military's ability to function and carry out its missions. The chief of staff of the Israeli army, Lieutenant General Herzl Levy, 
was correct in speaking out forcefully against the reservist's intention. He said that while he was aware of the public debate, he will not permit harming the ability of the Israel Defense Forces to actualize its fateful mission, which is to safeguard the nation's security. That is the mission of the Defense Forces, and no one is free to disregard this. The head of the Israeli Air Force, his name is Major General Tomer Barr, wrote to the reserve pilots urging them to continue to report to your units for duty, continue to serve and fulfill your commitment to your unit, to your subordinates, and to your commanders, to the state of Israel, to its security, and the protection of its citizens. And that is the absolute truth. The head of the National Unity Party in the Knesset, uh, the, his name is Benny Gantz, and he's a former defense minister and a former chief of staff. He called on reservists to keep serving and show up no matter what, defend this country in protest and in service. Don't lend a hand to insubordination. And he's 100% right. However, having said all that, you can't ignore the sense of despair that many Israelis feel, including those who serve in special units and fighter pilots, but also regular soldiers and citizens, reserve units, who are called up regularly to serve their country. They're upset about what the um, a, a law, a, a bill that's about to become law, that, to which they don't agree. So the fact that they um, oppose this is something that can't be ignored. But developments such as reserve pilots' refusal to participate in training puts the entire country in danger. This is beyond politics. Now, at the moment, it's just a tiny group of people who serve in the reserves. But you can't afford to lose them and risk those numbers swelling and becoming greater. So what the uh, politicians have to do, both the politicians in the government and those in the opposition, should see this as an alarm bell that spurs them to recalibrate, recalculate, and negotiate. And this, by the way, is something that... Um, that the, the president, Isaac Herzog, has implored both sides, come and negotiate. So it, the, the prime minister himself is, came up with an interesting comment. He said, I call upon those in the opposition to do some, something simple. Present your alternative and attempt to reach an agreement. So... All this could be resolved probably within a couple of days if the two sides would not stick in their positions and refuse to negotiate. Right now, as I said, the prime minister is calling for the opposition to come and negotiate and is now up to the opposition to show, to show that it, the national interest is what, is what really prompts everybody sit down, negotiate, 
in all in all governments, in all democratic countries, there is always opposition to the government. There is always different uh, different uh, uh, ideas about how the, the nation should carry forth. The, the the solution is always negotiate. Not everybody wins in a negotiation. Not everybody loses in a negotiation. A negotiation, in my mind, is simply like a business deal. You come in with one position, and you make compromise, and you get a position which is not the one you came in with, but it's the one that, that you can live with. And that what has to be done. Right now, the, the dispute is totally out of bounds, and people are demonstrating primarily against the changes proposed, but there are also demonstrations in favor. People are writing letters, and uh, it's, it's in all the news now and on the news programs. And it, as I said at the beginning, this is probably the new biggest uh, controversy, contra, contra, controversy in the country since the acceptance of uh, German reparations back in the early 1950s. I mean, Israel is a country that has a lot of uh, conflicts, uh, you know, primarily verbal, over the many years, and that's sort of much accepted. But uh, this one is really a biggie. And when you have members, uh, prime members of the uh, army, the Air Force, say that they won't come and serve, that is really going over the boundaries. So the politicians have to sit down in a cool-headed manner come to some kind of compromise so that this crisis passes. And just a few more words on this topic without the political part. You have to ask yourself, how bad would it be for Israel's national security of the, the reservists uh, striking against the government's judicial overhaul policy that leads to key units being less ready for war? Questions about the the reserves and the army reserves are highly complex. On one hand, in recent years, there are said to be well over 400,000 Israel Defense Force reservists who could be called up in the event of a war, which is a number many times larger than the standing army is at a time. Right now, there aren't that many standing army soldiers, 400,000. On the other hand, the, there is a think tank, think tank at, that's done surveys that indicated that only about 1.5% of residents serve in the reserves and only about 6% of soldiers who complete their mandatory service continue to be on active reserve duty. I myself, as a new immigrant, I was drafted into the Army when I was 38 years old. And I uh, did uh, reserve duty until I was 53. A lot of people like that. who start uh, going to the regular Army when they're 18 years old, and they do uh, active reserve duty up until they're in their 50s. So uh, this suggests that the number of reservists who regularly show up for training even in normal times, is much smaller than 400,000. The army at any given time, including the reservists, is much smaller than that number. Incidentally, one way to uh, judge the significance of the reserves 
is to look at the way they have been uh, used in recent conflicts. At a recent Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security conference, the former head of the army said that although many think of the reserves uh, as uh, not likely to be used in actual combat, large numbers were used in crucial capacities, not only in the, in the Yom Kippur War back in 1973, but also the Lebanon War, 19, first Lebanon War in 1982, and recently in 2000, the Operation Defensive Shield, and in 2014, in Operation Protective Edge. In the 2014 Gaza War, at one point, more than 80,000 Army reservists were called up, and they, they did a wide variety of crucial roles. And that was the biggest recent call-up, 80,000. There are small call-ups or uh, every now and then. Back in April of 2022, the Army called up sizable number of reserves to confront the terror wave in the West Bank. And, and it's, the, the question is, how, how many can the Army call up? How can they deploy properly for the, the, the um, against any particular uh, uh, problem. Back in August 2022, the former government approved calling up 25,000 reserves during a multi-day conflict with Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Ultimately, the full reservist call-up did not need to be implemented since the conflict was uh, over within days. But had it lasted, they probably would have called up more. So the calling of the reserves is a very, very serious issue. You've got to remember, when you call up reserves, you're calling people out of their normal lives. You're calling, uh, you know, people out of their work, professionals, uh, and so forth. And it's a very serious thing. It, none of this means that every reservist is equally important any more than every regular soldier has real war-making value. The combat soldiers are a very small percentage of the total army in any army anywhere in the world. Most are support troops. So uh, the in, in re recent years, reserve units have gotten more attention and resources, and others have gotten less. As I said, none of every reservist is equally important. Any more than every regular soldier has real war-making war value. So we understand the concerns of the people. and uh, But at the same time, using army duty as a tool in a protest is simply not right. The, uh, obviously, we can't keep everyone all the reservists at a high level of readiness, but indeed, if they're, if they're called in to retain their readiness, it is really is not right for them not to show up. The, uh, there are some very crucial reserves, and there are some that are less crucial. The word refuseniks normally refers to citizens who are called up their initial obligatory service, and they refuse to show up. The, uh, so there are refuseniks who, and this happens, and there are people in the army who refuse to take orders if they feel the the orders are immoral, things like that. That's a subject unto itself. The, uh, the, the there are some people 
that are really not at the moment replaceable. They serve in these very, very highly, highly qualified units. And to say they're not going to show up because of political reasons, that is simply not right. The reason I brought this all up, and I've spoken about this previously on my program, is that right now it is a critical issue that is taking place in Israel, and hopefully it will be resolved within a really decent amount of time. This, this whole thing probably could be resolved if the two sides, political sides, sit down, get together, lock the door, and come to some kind of agreement. It probably shouldn't take longer than a week. But that's, of course, only my opinion. At any rate, I want to give the listeners an idea of the crucial issues, the crucial issue which is facing Israel now. And I'll keep, of course, I'll keep the listeners updated. Until next time, then, Jay Shapiro signing off. Thanks for listening. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candlelighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel. Plus, little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.